0: Okay, nice to see you all. Hope you're all well. Um, so, today I'm going to do um, some Bible teaching rather than Bible preaching. So, you'll have to put your brains on today. That's all right with some of you. And um, I'm going to be talking a bit about um, the importance of Israel and what's going on today and, and understanding biblically um, some things that, that may help give some clarity to what's going on in the world, etc. Um, and. In the Bible it talks about King David had these these men and they were known as the sons of Issachar and they were people that understood the signs of the times so not necessarily everything that 's going on in the world is in the Bible you know it 's not necessarily like the book of Revelation right now but nevertheless it's still important that you understand. Uh, we can be of people that understands the signs of the times that we understand the spirit of the age that we understand the, the way that the world is thinking and how that we can combat that with the scriptures, etc., so that we are not influenced by them um, and go along with the narrative of the world, which is, quite frankly, mad at the moment. Um, so I'm going to start with Psalm 2, verse 1. And uh, it's a great verse. It just says, quite simply, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And you only have to switch on the news to see <laughs> that the nations are in turmoil, the nations are in uproar. You can see things that are going on in Ireland right now, you see things that are going on in, the st- in our own streets, you see things going on in the streets all around the world, and it's all because of what's going on in the Middle East. And uh, I can imagine there are a lot of people quite perplexed by this, and indeed probably a lot of Christians, and how do we respond to this, and how do we pray about this, because it may seemingly be quite complex Uh, And so, hopefully, by the end of today's talk, you will have some basic idea of how to pray for the Middle East, but understand biblically what's going on at the moment as well. So, Psalm 2, verse 1 says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Um, Now, I need to tell you where Psalm 2 is set. So, Psalm 2 is set in the future, hasn't happened yet and it's when the Messiah is ruling and reigning over the earth. That happens in what is known as the millennial reign, which is the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. So 6,000 years are appointed to the times of man and the Gentiles. Then comes the seventh thousandth year, which is the Sabbath, Sabbath of the nations, and Jesus is ruling and reigning. Now, this psalm is set towards the end of Of the millennial reign. How do I know? Because it talks about the nations in uproar. And what happens is, is you've got two key moments in history. So you have the battle of, just for those that don't know, the battle of Gog and Magog, the first one, which is known as the battle of Armageddon. So this happens prior to Jesus's return. Then we have the thousand-year reign. And towards the end of the thousand-year reign, we have the battle of Gog and Magog, which happens towards the end when Satan is released from the pit and all the nations are deceived and they conspire and they come against Israel at the end of day and the the, the holy city and all the saints that live there. And so that's really what Psalm 2 is actually about. Okay, So theologically, that's where it sits. Um, Okay, for those that are not sure about Gog, Magog being at the end of the thousand-year reign, where's that in the Bible? Uh, It says in here, Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10. When the thousand years of Messiah's reign upon the earth are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet that where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they'll be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Amen. Right. So there'll be. So I said all about the two Gog and Magog wars, and if you wonder what who, what's Gog and Magog, what's that about? It's in the Book of Ezekiel, chapters thirty-eight and thirty-nine, the very famous passages referring to the end of days, etc. Okay, so that's bit, a little bit about the psalm itself and where it's set. Okay, so current world events. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? So one of the main problems today uh, in Christendom, as if it hasn't got enough problems as it is, is the issue of replacement theology. Now, replacement theology does what it says on the tin. It replaces something. But what is it replacing and what is it replacing it with? Well, replacement theology states that the church has replaced Israel and God is finished with Israel because they rejected the Messiah. Therefore, now it's all about the church and it's all about the kingdom of God and that's it. Okay. So the question you need to ask yourself then is, where did this even come from? Because you see, nothing just randomly comes about. There's a reason, there's a story for this. And the reason why we had, uh, why the church went replacement goes right back to the early church. Now in Acts chapter 15, there's a big council and the council was, should Gentiles get circumcised and should they observe the Torah of Moses? And the conclusion was at the end of the chapter, it says, uh, a letter was sent out to all the church and it said, and this seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. Who? So who, who is the Holy Spirit? He's God. Okay. Who, do you want to argue with God? No, no, no. You don't want to argue with God. Okay. So it seemed good to us, that was the apostles, and the Holy Spirit. Then if they observed these four things, which was don't eat meat that's offered to idols, don't eat meat that's been strangled, don't eat meat with blood still in it, or I don't eat meat that's alive, and don't have sex outside of marriage. If you do this, you do well. Okay, and that was it, which is what was known as the Noahide laws, which is Genesis chapter 9, which it talks about there. And you can look at that all up in your own good time. So that's, that's the early days of the church. But then we still had an ongoing problem. The ongoing problem with the early church was the please don't hear what I'm not saying. It's the Hebrew Roots Movement. The Hebrew Roots Movement then is a little bit different from what it's like now. I'm not talking about nice Christians that just want to get in touch with their their, their Hebrew roots of the scriptures and understand the Hebrew roots of Jesus and the Jewishness and all that. This wasn't like that. These guys were militant. They were like, you Gentiles, okay, because some of these were Gentiles and some of them were Jews. They were ex-Pharisees. They were like, you're not truly saved until you get circumcised and until you observe the customs of Moses. Now, we have the writings of the early church fathers, and they are based in year AD 100, 200, 300, so on up to year 700. And according to their texts, and these are the famous bishops of the early early church in those early centuries, and they wrote various uh, books, etc. And they were saying that one of the main problems in the early church was this Hebrew roots movement that kept on saying this over and over again. So slowly but surely, the church had to keep putting out these... um, uh, a knee-jerk reaction, really, to this to this movement, and in the end, by AD 450, because the church was so fed up with this heresy, they basically it come to a conclusion of right. We don't want anything to do with anything to do with Israel or the Jews. We are the church. This is Christianity. And we want nothing more to do with it. So by AD 450, the church had become replacement in her theology. Okay, she, so the church had basically come to a point where we have replaced Israel, and Israel is irrelevant. Well, of course. Anyone reads their Bible, they know that that isn't true. But the problem is with replacement theology bringing it to our time now is that it's a very church-centrist theology. So everything's about church. And everything's about kingdom and they can't see anything beyond that okay so when they look at Israel and the fact that Israel became a nation again is just purely coincidental to them it means absolutely nothing the fact that Israel became a nation as well there's some random fluke coincidence but it means nothing God's not interested in them anymore because God has finished with the Jews this is what replacement belief not what I believe but this is what replacement camp teach as a consequence of that If you don't understand the importance of Israel, okay, then you don't understand pretty much most of your Bible when it comes to uh, understanding things like prophecy. So the book of Revelation after chapter 4 is all about Israel. Okay, it's all about the great war that goes on in the Middle East and the rise of the Antichrist. But if you have this replacement mindset where the church has replaced Israel and it's just all about Christianity and it's all about the church and the kingdom of God, then you no longer have a working understanding of how God deals with the nations. Now, the problem is, is that when when you have this mindset, you, you have this mindset that says everything in the Old Testament is bad, it's a waste of time don't read it because it's old it's defunct we're now in the new covenant it's all new it's all, it's all nice and shiny and brand new etc so we don't worry about the old testament anymore this is what, how replacement people think so they, they might use the old testament in a sermon but that's not really how they'll, they'll read it they'll really spend most of their time in the new testament the problem with that is is this when we get different covenants throughout scripture, so we have the Adamic, we have the Noahic, we have the Abrahamic, we have the Mosaic, we have the Davidic, and then we have the Messianic, which is what we're a part of, but no covenant is at the expense of the previous one. In other words, it's, it's gradual revelation of God's dealings with man. And so what God revealed to us in the past is no long, longer now obsolete just because we're New Testament Christians. So how God deals with the nations in the Old Testament, believe it or not, is still how he deals with it now. And I'll I'll come to that in a minute. So, for example, Jesus said, I have not come to do away with the Torah or the law of the prophets, but I've come to to fulfill them. And so replacement people are like, yes, Jesus fulfilled them. Therefore, he's done away with them. No, no. Jesus said, I've come not to do away with them, but to fulfill them. Yeah, but he fulfilled it, so so therefore he's done away with it. No, that's not what Jesus said. Okay, and then, so how can it be that the Torah, if it's not done away with, and we're Christians, how does that work? Simple. In Romans, I know I'm giving you a a lot here, but I've got to get to my point. In Romans chapter seven, Paul gives this analogy of a woman, or I can't which way around it is, man or a woman, but I say, a woman, she can't marry again, until her husband dies, because if she marries again and her husband's still alive, she commits adultery. Okay? so But when the husband dies, it says as long as the person is alive, the Torah has power over them. But when that person is dead, it no longer has power over them. So when the husband dies, the woman is free to marry again. Okay? And then Paul brings this to the New Testament. If, you are, if you're a person just walking around, the law, everyone is really subject to the law of God. But if you believe in Christ and are baptized, you have been crucified with Christ. You have died in the waters of baptism. Therefore, at that moment, you are now free from the Mosaic administration, and you come into free to marry again into a new covenant, and that's the new birth. That's all well and good for Christians, but that is not true for those that don't believe in Jesus. Our people say, Oh, this is the age of grace, brother. As though somehow the cross applies to everybody in the universe. The cross only applies to those that believe in Christ Jesus. And Romans 1 teaches us that everyone will be judged by the law and by their conscience. So the law still stands and will do so until the end of the age. But Christians are not under it because we have died with Christ and therefore are free to come into a new covenant. And because... The law is still relevant, therefore that's why God will deal with Israel in a certain way and he will deal with the nations in a certain way. Because when we come to the world as Christians, we often normally have a nice pair of glasses and we're like, put them on, and it's the lens of kingdom and it's the lens of church. But God is still dealing with nations in the way like he did in the Old Testament and he still deals with Israel in the way like he did in the Old Testament. Is everyone with me so far? All right, okay, thank you. So now we need to look at a New Testament point of view. Because if I spoke to a, someone who was into replacement theology, they would not interested in any Old Testament uh, verses about you know, how you should pray for the peace of Israel and all this kind of stuff. I'm not interested in that because it's Old Testament. All right, So we need to look to the New Testament to make our claim. Okay, So what does the New Testament say about the Jewish people? The first question we need to ask is, has God rejected the Jewish people as the replacement people will always say? Okay? Okay. I know you I'm preaching to the choir here, but there's a lot of people that watch this who are not sure. But does the Bible actually have the answer? Firstly, there's not one single scripture in your Bible in the New Testament that says that the gentiles have replaced Israel. It's not there, okay? If you look for it, I'll give you the sound effect. It's not there, okay? Tumbleweed moment. So let's see what the apostle Paul has to say about this. And the answer is found in Romans 11:1. Now, the fact that Paul brings this up shows that it must have been a question of its day, hence why he gave the answer to the question. So Romans 11.1 says this, I say then, has God rejected his people? All right? I mean, there's the question. That's the $1 million question. Has God rejected his people? And he goes on to say, may it never be. And then he's like, hey guys, because I too am an Israelite. Duh! I'm Jewish. I got saved. Okay, so I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul's argument here is that if God has left the Jewish people, why is Paul a Jew, born again? Okay. Now yeah. we'll we'll make this a little bit more sophisticated as we goes on, as we go on. So then he goes on to say some more in Romans eleven too. God has not rejected His people. Whom he foreknew. God hasn't rejected them. So verse 1, he says he hasn't rejected them. Verse 2, he hasn't said he rejected them. All right. So far, so good. And in Romans eleven eleven, he goes on to say, I say then, they, that's the Jewish people, did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. All right. So he said it several times now. God has not forsaken. God has not rejected The Jewish people, okay? Then we get to Romans 11b. Now, this is an amazing verse. It says, By Israel's transgression, as in rejecting the Messiah, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So you thank the Lord that through their rejecting him, it allowed me and you to come to faith in Christ. And the purpose of that is to make them jealous, okay? Then we drop down to verse 15 says, For if their rejection is reconciliation for the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If you think of all the revivals and the, and the great church history has come about because of their rejection, then how much more when they come back again, it will be for us but life from the dead? In other words, it's been good now, but it'll be even better when all Israel shall be saved. So, People think the Jews rejected the Messiah, and that's why God rejected them. But I love this, because it's like, well, let's take that logic. Okay, God has rejected the Jews because they rejected him. All right, okay, take that logic, and let's spin it back to the Gentiles. How many Gentiles are there in the world compared to Jews? There's a lot more, right? There's a lot more Gentiles than there are Jews, okay? You don't need to be bright to figure that out. Okay, I go down the streets. Uh, we go out and do outreach on the streets every now and then. And we tell people so many times, you know, about the love of Jesus and how good God is. And what do they do? Not interested. I'm rejecting that. No, thank you. God's not. I'm not interested in that whole God thing. In other words, the Gentiles are rejecting God. But does God reject the Gentiles? <laughs> No, it's the same logic as applied to the Jew. Why is it that the Jew, if they reject God, now they are forever rejected. But we Gentiles, we're okay even if we do reject God. It's utter nonsense, okay? So using that logic, it doesn't work. Am I kicking something around here? Okay. So, of course, another argument from the replacement camp will be, Well, yes, Jews can come into the church just like Muslims can get born again, etc. But by doing this, again, they're trying to put the Jewish situation into the lens of kingdom and into the lens of the church. Now, ultimately, Jews are a part of the church and we are part of, but we're grafted into all of that. But what they're trying to do is just say, yeah, but you know, Jews can get born again and so can, so can Muslims and so can Hindus, etc. But what they're not dealing with is the fact that God has made a promise to the Jewish people, which is not just about them getting born again, but it's to do with the nation of Israel and a people group as well. And so we need to now go back in time to take a moment to look at the, one of the most important covenants in the Old Testament. And it's so important. And this is known as the Abrahamic Covenant. Now, if you meet anyone in the replacement camp, this is your argument that you can stand on, okay? All right, but before we do that, I need to look at Romans 1128 to 29, because this one's, this one's diamond right here, this is diamond. And uh, it says, from the point of the gospel, they, the Jewish people, are enemies for your sake. Oh, oh hang on. But then he goes on to say, But from the standpoint of God's choice, i.e. his election and his choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. What fathers? Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. For the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Now I hear people say, use this scripture out of turn for lots of things. If God gave you the gift of tongues, he'll never take it back from you because it's irrevocable. But the actual context of this passage is to do with Israel. The covenants that God spoke to the people of Israel and to the forefathers, it is irrevocable. It is unreversible. It is impossible to break it. All right? So Paul Paul spells this out very clearly. The Jewish people are God's choice, and he will fulfill what he swore to the patriarchs, and he will bring about those callings, those gifts, and those promises at the end because they cannot Those promises cannot be made null and void, ever. So now we need to look into the Old Testament and look at this Abrahamic covenant, because it's made up of several components. Genesis 15, verses 17 to 18 says, And it came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. These pieces are the sacrifice that that, that, uh, Abraham had just made to the Lord. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Incidentally, that saying, from the river to the sea, let Palestine be free, is trying to rewrite what that scripture says is. To your descendants, I've given this land from the river of Egypt, basically to the sea of Euphrates. Okay? So... If anyone's ever quoted that, you really need to be careful what you're saying. You know, if you're at one of those rallies saying, from the river to the sea, let Palestine be free, what you're saying there is you're trying to undo the word of God. Mm-hmm. It's literally what they're saying. They're literally saying, no, they have no say to the, or claim to the land. Ironically, uh, I've got a friend who's sending me the text later today, but the Quran even says that Israel the Jewish people will own the land of Israel. It actually, yeah. says it in the Koran. Okay. Whoo. I'm going to get that mailbag on Monday. Okay. So, <laughs> here God swore by covenant that he would make Abraham's descendants a nation and that he would give them a physical land to live in. Now, I've written a book called The Biblical Importance of Israel, and uh, it never really sold. But in the last couple of months... It's it's I've been selling them like hotcakes. It's because obviously it's relevant for now. But this that book goes into this into a lot more depth if you if you want to look into this. Um, so now let's look. Now let's take it now forward to the Gospels. Okay, so we know about the Abrahamic covenant that God promised Abraham several things. He promised them that they would become a great nation as numerous as the stars he promises them in various times throughout the, uh, the early part of genesis that he will also give them land and it will be a land that belongs to them forever how long's forever? forever are you sure about that forever's a long time right it means forever and then the third part of that covenant is that it's a the, the Gentile, sorry the jews would be a light to the gentiles and from them would come salvation to the gentiles okay so, here's a problem for those in the replacement camp. If you now say, well, actually, the first two parts of that Abrahamic covenant aren't relevant anymore, but the last part to the Gentiles is. Okay, no, no, no. If God is a covenant breaker to Israel, then he sure as heck is a covenant breaker to you. Either that Abrahamic covenant stands or it doesn't. Okay, and it still stands. And there's loads of New Testament scriptures to prove it. So, let's now go to the Gospels, okay? Because we're coming to that time of year where it's, uh, it's Advent, my favourite time of year, and we can put on these rose-tinted glasses, and we can read these famous old gospel stories of the Christmas story. Isn't it so nice? And we miss the rich language, covenantal language that's there, that proves that God has not forsaken his people. So Luke what, chapter 1, verses 54 to 55, it says, He has given help to his... so context this is mary's magnificat she's proclaiming and it says he has given help to israel his servant in remembrance of his mercy as he promised to our fathers to abraham and his descendants forever All right forever okay it's not conditional on anything then we come to zechariah that's uh, the father of john the baptist and he suddenly has a has a moment and Luke 1 72 to 73 it says to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath which he swore to Abraham our father what oath the oath that we would become a mighty people the oath that we would become that we would have our own territory our own land and the oath that from us the gentiles would come in then we come to Simeon's proclamation of Jesus in the temple when uh, he's going in to be dedicated or circumcised. And it says in Luke two twenty nine to 32 uh, Simeon says, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people, Israel. Okay. Not the people that God's rejected or anything like that. It's quite clear that God is still fulfilling his promises to the people of Israel. Romans Back to Romans 11 again. From the standpoint of the gospel, they, the Jewish people, are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Hopefully I've said enough little bits there. To give you an idea that that Abrahamic covenant has not in any way passed. And God has not gone back on his promises. And God still sees Israel as his people. Because if God will break his covenant with Israel, man, he can break it for you and me. So God loves Israel, as we can see from that scripture. Although uh, it says here from the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for our sake. But for the standpoint of God's choice, they're beloved. God loves them. doesn't love them necessarily for who they are, but because of the promises that he gave to Abraham. Just like God loves us, irrespective of what we do and we don't do. Because let's be honest, we're, we're all quite naughty Christians quite a lot of the time. Amen? I said amen? <laughs> all right. Some people were like, oh, I'm not going to admit to that. Um, <laughs> so... Obviously, this is a very brief introduction to what's going on here. And there's a lot of things that we need to be, be, be mindful of. Um, this morning, one of the guys here, the leaders, got up and he was saying about you know, how Jesus has gotten us the victory and he's won the battle over Satan and stuff. And yes, it's theologically true, but it left me feeling hollow and empty inside because it's like, that is true. But as a Christian, my job, as is everyone's here... Is to bring about that victory of Christ into the nations, and quite frankly, it doesn't look like the nations are subdued to the kingdom of the peace of God just yet. Right, that day will come, and therefore, there's a responsibility on us to speak out and against the spirit of the age which threatens our nation. And this is not just our nation, but all of Western civilization. Because there's a lot of complex things going on at the moment. Um, and so, one of the complex issues that's going on, has been going on for the last 20 years, is the, this uh, very liberal left, hard left, uh, politicized agenda that's come into our nation. What is the point? What, what is the, what the liberal left? What are they trying to do? What is their ultimate aim? And it is basically to undermine Western civilization. Because they hate it. Why? Because the founder, and this is true, every good uh, atheist who is a very intellectual one understands that the foundation of this nation and the Western world is built upon Christianity. Okay? Now, I've watched enough history programs to know that this nation and the Western world became what it was because of Christianity. At the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, this nation regressed, you know, we were going back to the old ways of doing things because we, we weren't very good with the technology. It was the Romans. But it, and, and we were starting, get, starting to move back into tribalism. But it was the Christian faith that brought this nation to a place where we started bringing in things like the Imago Day, which is talking about man made in the image of God. And therefore, men and women were given rights through the through the rule of law and common law. And so women were given rights that they could marry whom they wanted to marry. They could own property if it was passed on to them, etc. And slowly but surely, through the rule of law came stability to the nations. And then through that stability came music, culture, art, science, and 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 innovation, which made this nation and made the Western world what it is. But the foundation of that is Christianity. And what, what liberalism seeks to do is to destroy Western civilization. It's telling us to be ashamed that you are white. Be ashamed of who you are because you're a colonizer and you go into the world and you colonize and and you you try to take over the world and and all this kind of stuff. This is part of the madness of, of the liberal woke ideology. It's trying to undermine the Western culture. Then add to that, we have a big Trojan horse which we've let into our nation. This is really going to be unpopular, me saying this, but it is a fact and one we have to pay attention to. We have a crisis, especially in Britain and across all of Europe, actually, where, where we've had mass immigration. I'm not talking about controlled immigration, mass immigration. Last year, we had 1.2 2 million people come into this nation. This year, we've had 1.2 million people, 1.3, come in. And next year, they reckon it will be the same thing again. That's three cities the size of Birmingham has just been introduced into our nation. Why is that a problem? Sorry? Sorry, yeah, it's three three cities or the size of Birmingham into Britain, sorry. Why is that a problem? because if you pour too much water into a concentrate it becomes diluted you have too much of another cu- culture coming into our culture our culture gets diluted and diluted so the liberal left are trying to undermine western civilization and the trojan horse of immigration is also seeking to destroy western civilization which is ultimately to destroy the judeo christian roots of our nation and of the west that is literally what is going on in our country and Around the Western world right now, and it's very serious. And so, when we see on our streets lots of people chanting, and not these aren't all Muslims; these are these are a lot of British people saying, "From well, I know British, but you know, I mean, uh, as in English liberal people, they are chanting, you know, on the streets on the Palestine, you know, from the river to the sea, Palestine be free." They don't actually know what it is that they're saying, but what we're seeing is is the beginning of the end of Western civilization. And this is why, as a, as a, as a as a Christian. As a leader and as churches, we have got to stop being quiet about this. Because being quiet about this has done nothing for us. It's allowed them to grow stronger in their vocal voice. And we need to start using reason and logic and intellect and politics and everything else that we can, and prayer obviously, to combat this nonsense before it's too late. We need to take our nation back. And what we're seeing going on in the Middle East... It's really quite important because the Middle East, okay, let me just explain something here. Israel has offered to all of the surrounding Arabs, they've offered them a two-state solution five times, okay? Israel have given away a lot of, a lot of land in the, in the bottom end, um, I can't remember, if it's Sinai Peninsula or whatever it was. They, they did own all that. They gave, it to the, they gave it to the Egyptians saying, look, we'll give you all that land, Okay, that was twice as big as what Israel is now. They gave it to the Egyptians saying, we'll give it to you so we can have peace. So the Egyptians took it. Peace? No. So I think it's in 2010, then Gaza Strip was given away by Israel to Gaza. Okay, this can you can have your own little state there and become Gaza, etc. And then Hamas came in and it became a terrorist organization. And so did they get peace then? No. Because the problem is with... With uh, PLO, Hezbollah, Hamas, all these all these organisations, they only have one goal: that is the annihilation and the destruction of all Jews and the state of Israel. Now, how can you negotiate with that? So, on the media, there was going, "We need a two-state solution." It's like you're not gonna get it to work. No one can get it to work because fundamentally, the Arabs don't want it to work. Israel is happy to live in peace, but the other people don't. And here's another problem. Israel is the bastion of the only piece of Western civilization in the Middle East. And if they dismantle Israel, they're coming for you, next. And one other thing you need to be aware of is why is the land of Israel so contested of every piece of real estate on planet planet Earth? You know, exactly. Because that's the place where Jesus is coming back. And if, if prophecy is to be fulfilled, Jesus is the king of the Jews. And he will come back. He's not coming back to Milan... He's not coming back to New York City. He's not coming to London. He's coming to Zion. He's going to land, you know, he's going to come and he's going to place his throne on Mount Zion. He's going to rule over Jerusalem and rule over all the nations. Amen? That's why that piece of land is contested because the devil doesn't want it to happen. Okay? And that's why Israel as a nation must exist. And that's why the people of Israel need to be there. So, coming into a close then. When we look at the news, etc., we can be very perplexed and confused. Can I just give a piece of advice? The BBC are in big trouble. There's a lot of complaints made against them because of the yeah. sheer uh, irresponsibility in their reporting. Yes. So, for example, you know, when, when the Jews said on October the 7th, oh, this is what's happened to us, our children being beheaded and all these kind of things, they had to show evidence, they had to show proof, they had to go way beyond... The norm to justify what they were saying. But then, when a rocket lands in a hospital, everyone is quick to judge that was Israel, that was them, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. even though when they did due, due diligence, they found that it had nothing to do with Israel, that it was its Hamas's own bomb. So you've got to be careful what news stations you're watching, because if you watch the BBC and you're watching Sky, they are very anti-Israel, because again, they are very much, uh, uh, they hold to these liberal ideologies, which hate everything to do with Western civilization. So you need to be very careful what you watch. So how to pray for Israel? How do we pray about the Middle East? Because at the end of the day, although as Christians we've got to be pro-Israel, we can't be Racist to the Muslims and the Arabs because God has called us to love all people. Yeah, I find this ironic. Yeah, I know I know of several churches in this area where people have asked their leaders if they can pray for have a prayer meetings to pray for Israel, and they've been told categorically, no. You can pray for anyone else you like, but you can't pray for Israel. That's dangerous because as Christians, we don't get a right to pick and choose who we like and who we don't like. That's more to do with politics. And that's, that's a dangerous game when you start doing things like that. So to understand God's heart for the Jewish people, we see this in Romans chapter 9 and verses 1 to 3. Paul says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. So this is not Paul having a moment here. He's being moved along by the Holy Spirit. He says that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for Israel. Romans 10.1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for them and for their salvation. Okay? If it's good enough for Paul, it's good enough for all of us. So anyone says, no, you can't pray for Israel. Say, well, the apostle Paul did. Why can he do it and we can't? Okay. So Paul's prayer for the people of Israel is to be saved. He's not praying about the Roman occupation. He's not getting into the politics of the situation. He's praying for them as a people group that God's heart and God's will will come to pass in their lives. Okay. So... If you are pro-Zionistic, you have some pros and you have some cons. The cons, the pros of being pro-Zionistic are, it means you have a better understanding of the end of days theology. You understand that Israel is somehow significant to all of this. We understand that a lot of Old Testament prophecy is still yet to be fulfilled. So if you're pro-Zionistic, you generally have a much better grasp on end times. Now, there may be differences in the sense of if you believe in a rapture, it'd be like if you're pre-trip, mid-trip, post-trip, whatever. Okay? But generally, whatever it is you believe on that, we all still believe in the same timeline. Okay? We all know how it's going to all sort of pan out. Um, so generally, being, being uh, pro-Zionistic is good. However, there are dangers of being too pro-Zionistic. <gasps> is there such a thing? Yeah. So you can have warped theology and an overemphasis on Israel. I remember I went, walked into a church once and it was, it was like the cult of Israel. It was just like, whoa, everything was about the Jew, everything was about, and it's like, and it's, don't get me wrong, it was just out of balance, okay? Uh, and then another downside of being pro, too pro-Zionistic is you become racist towards the Arabs. So that you, can't, you don't get to pick and choose who you like and who you don't like. We have to love all people, hallelujah. Yeah. Um, it can lead to becoming overtly dogmatic and schismatic, we've all seen that. Just me then. Um, They can become unbalanced with their end times theology and keep seeing the end of the world everywhere. Under the cups, under the the rocks, under the stones, in the drawers where the the knives are. Okay. So praying for the Middle East can be contentious. I've been to some really embarrassing prayer meetings. There was one prayer meeting I was at when ISIS were moving across uh, wherever they were going. And um, there was a small group of us in this room. And uh, there was all kinds of prayers. And then one person was like, Lord, send down your fire, blow them up, kill them, burn them, destroy them, wipe them off the earth. And and you could feel it, this rippling throughout the room, like, I agree with that. I don't agree with that. I agree with that. I don't agree. I don't agree. And it just took the unity of our prayers out of the room. When we pray, we need to have unity. So praying like that isn't necessarily particularly helpful. Okay. So when it comes to the Middle East, try to make sure, first of all, that you're actually well-informed because a lot of people are watching stuff that's either conspiracy and it's just weirdly wacky stuff, or they're watching the BBC. Um, Sometimes you can come to a place of perplexity in that you just don't know how to pray for the Middle East. And so I I give you these four Ps, okay? This is not my own creation. This is people like Pete Gregg talk about this. And so they come up with these four Ps. The first one is pray for the people affected, okay? Now that is both the Jews... And the Arabs. okay. Pray for the people affected. Um, pray for the pastors and the priests on the ground, i.e. church leaders and Christian communities. This may come as a surprise to some of you, but there are um, Christians in Gaza and churches there. And some of these pastors, they've lost their wives and their families in the, in the destruction of what's happened. Um, and they feel like Christians have forgotten about them. They feel that they just feel abandoned and forgotten. So we need to—you need to be there for them. You need to support them. You need to help them. And you see, this is where people get a little bit black and white. It's like, well, those pastors—they wouldn't have this problem if it wasn't for the Jewish people. It's like, no, if it wasn't for Hamas that broke the ceasefire, Israel wouldn't have had to retaliate. Okay, so I, I, the fact that that Christians are dying because of Jewish attack doesn't—is not—I don't see that as the issue. The issue is here is that Hamas is the problem in the Middle East. Pray for the politicians to make the right choices. And then pray for the peacemakers. That's the NGOs, the non-governmental organisations, the good ones that are actually helping people, bringing in aid and stuff like that. So they're the four Ps. Pray for the people affected... Pray for the pastors and priests and the Christian communities. Pray for the politicians. Pray for the peacemakers. If we can pray like that, it means we can all pray in the same room and keep united and not be divided. When it comes to the issue of Israel, we can pray according to what the scriptures teach us. And when it comes to all the other stuff around that, we can use these four Ps to actually help us be really good in our prayers and and not be schismed, and not be divided, and not be too pro-Zionistic or be too pro-Palestinian. That actually we 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 stand with Israel because of God's heart for Israel, but we also have to pray and love everybody else and all that's going on out there in the Middle East as well. Lord Jesus, I pray today. Lord has been helpful to us all. Lord, I pray, Lord God, that you'll help us wherever we are at theologically with this hot potato, Lord God. I pray in these days that you give us wisdom and bring your church into a place of unity when it comes to praying for Israel and the people of the Middle East. And we ask this in your name and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.